I'm speaking today with Sarah Burrell and Lily Shying, who are regional prevention specialists with FCD Prevention Works. FCD is a nonprofit organization that works with students to gain the knowledge and skills they need to make intelligent, healthy choices about alcohol and other drug use. Sarah and Lily are at foot this week working with students in grades 5, 7, and 9. They also led a parent presentation and discussion on Wednesday. And Sarah and Lily are here to talk about the work they're doing at foot. So, Sarah, what are you covering in classes this week? Uh, well, it's, uh, our schedule is broken down where I have uh, three fifth grade classes and one ninth grade class. And Lily is doing three seventh grade classes and a, and a ninth grade class. So when we work with fifth grade or middle school, we, we really start to um, try to get a, a common language around addiction. We want to define addiction as a disease. We want to talk about it uh, being a progressive disease uh, and the risk factors involved and the ones that we like to focus on at FCD is family, age, craving, tolerance, and surroundings. Um, and, uh, and also talk about protective factors. What, what in someone's life helps them... Uh, you know, that reinforces them making healthier decisions and that just having them develop a consciousness of why and why we want to make healthy decisions. And at that age, we really want to focus on that risk factor of age of first use because what study after study after study has shown is the younger someone starts, the more likely they're going to have a problem. And that's just the vulnerability of a developing brain to be to uh, attach itself to uh, a much higher uh, neurochemical activity that's uh, that's prompted by a drug like alcohol or marijuana. It's much higher than than would happen normally, and so that's an experience that that's very new to a brain when they when they put in a substance like alcohol or or marijuana. The dopamine levels prompted are higher than than they than they would normally experience, even with you know laughing with their friends or. Uh, you know, playing a sport. And so what happens with the developing brain is the the potential for the reward circuit to attach itself to the higher level activity mm. in an unhealthy way. And that is more likely to happen and actually be programmed in, is how I say it, into their brain blueprint because this is all happening while it's developing. Mm. And I think one of the unique things about FCD is everyone is in long-term recovery that works for this organization so I can I can you know attest to uh, starting while my brain was developing and 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 uh, really that experiencing that attachment mm. to and, and then re-seeking and seeking out that experience over and over again that reward circuitry of the brain and the more someone lets their brain develop and with the fifth graders I always say you gotta let your brain do its thing let your brain and they go do its thing and I go let your brain do its thing it's just those little sound bites that they get to hold on to you know which is so important when you when you start to create or start to create a climate and a culture of prevention so really it's just about letting helping them however we can put that off postpone it let their brain develop into a place where they can experience that neurochemical level of of stimulation by something like alcohol, but it doesn't infiltrate. It doesn't affect it in nearly the same way. I mean, the statistic is 90% of the adults who struggle with alcoholism started at under 18. 
So it is it's probably the most significant factor after the genetic component. As if it's all over someone's family tree, they can be in their 20s or 30s before they add alcohol or, or experience alcohol, and that still cannot be okay. For some people, the, the genetic component is just so strong that alcohol is just not an option for them, and they discover that. Well. So you guys come every year, and you work with grades 5, 7, and 9. So for some students, this is probably the third time they've seen you. Um, why do you work with those grades in particular? Schools determine uh, and what grades they want us to target. And we, I think ongoing comprehensive is, is the most effective. So we tend to skip a grade. We don't see them in fifth. And again, in fifth, we start to develop a, a, a <clears throat> language, um, definitions, an understanding of neurochemistry, how it works, natural highs, healthy choices, risk factors involved. When we get into seventh grade, we get a little more in depth start talking more about specific substances, really teach to their questions, uh, really introduce the idea of social norms, even in fifth grade, that idea that usually teenagers' perception of use is higher than it really is, and there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, and so we, we really start to get them to understand that we, it's, you need to scrutinize the information that's coming in that creates a perception especially around substances, because there's a lot of pop culture pro-use messaging that gives them the impression that everybody's drinking or everybody's smoking marijuana, when actually, you know, this generation of teenagers is probably the healthiest that's ever been. Mm. And substance use abuse for teenagers has declined, mm. at, you know, since the 70s. Mm. And the majority of, of teenagers are actually making really healthy decisions and choosing to remain substance-free. So that doesn't, they don't tend to have the narrative, that group. Mm. You know, nobody's coming in on Monday going, well, I was so sober this weekend. It's awesome, you know. So <laughs> part of prevention is about how do we shift the narrative to that group? How do we, how do we give them a voice in this? Because a lot of the times it's, you know, they're going to, the, the talk in school is about the party that they went to. You know? Even if a, a teenager goes to a party and walks into a room where six of their friends are hanging out, drinking soda water, chatting, laughing, having a great time. And then they leave that room and go into the kitchen and there's four really drunk people having a food fight. What story is going to be told? Oh, and again, how do we, it's going to be the food fight. And by the time that gets around the whole school, everybody was there, everybody was drunk, and everybody was having a food fight. <laughs> and the, the, the kids in the room having a great time without alcohol, that story mm. gets lost. Mm. So when we shift into ninth grade, we really start to break it down, use in community, use in, well, use in, in uh, culture, use in community, use in the individual, both developmentally and, and neurochemically. But it also, when we get into ninth grade, it really shifts from like middle school, probably conceptual, mm. unless they have someone in their family struggling with substance use abuse. But in ninth grade and upper school, it starts to be... How do I navigate my life with substance use and abuse around me? How do you know? How do we do that? Yeah, I think the other value too to the uh, FCD education in ninth grade is that since the foot school, the students are transitioning to a new school the coming year. We mm -hmm. do know that times of transition tend to be 
somewhat challenging for students because all of a sudden the next year they might be in new experiences, exposed to new people, maybe not feeling as, as comfortable or as confident as they were in this community that for the most part is very, very healthy. And so we want to make sure that kind of before they're, they're sent to, um, you know, their, their new experiences, just that they have that kind of last soundbiter or, or last time when they really have the chance to consider. And we try to create the space because we know that as the students get older, they are listening less and less to what I might tell them, right? and more and more to kind of their own inner voice. And so just encouraging that before they have new chances and, and, and new kind of opportunities or new exposures in, in, a, in a new community. Great. What are the biggest risk factors for substance use abuse? Yeah. yeah. So um, as Sarah mentioned, we talk about the risk factors of family history, age of first use, craving, tolerance, and surroundings. And the primary two are definitely the family history. And when we say family history, we mean um, primarily the, the blood, blood relatives, because that's where the genetic component lies, as well as the age of first use. Um, and so those are two things that even if we don't get into the other three risk factors as much, those are the two that we talk about with 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 all of the students because it's so important that they know that um, and I also encourage my <clears throat> I've encouraged my seventh and ninth graders this week to go home and if they don't know if they have a family history of addiction or alcoholism to have that conversation because it's good information to have and it helps the students to make their own choices with as much education and and information as they can. So what are the most effective strategies for uh, preventing substance abuse at this age? I think that you really have to um, develop a climate slash culture. I like to use culture because it's more concrete. Because we do, we have, we have done a very good job with pop culture pro-use messaging. I mean, you just watch TV shows and how many times... You know, in a TV show, does somebody walk over to the alcohol and pour themselves a drink? Or, you know, somebody's got a bottle in their desk at work, and it's like, oh, good case, okay, hard case, let's have a drink. That's mm. and, and so over and over and over again, they, we are all given the message that this is, what, this is what we do. This is what we do as a culture. You get into movies, TV shows, and then when you start getting into music, it's, it's kind of hard to find a song in the top 40 that doesn't, or top 100 pop or rap or rock that doesn't refer, you know, reference alcohol or some other substance in a, tends to be a positive way. So they're inundated with these messages. What it does is it gives them the perception that a lot more of this, of, you know, of their peers are doing this than actually are. So we do, we work with uh, Monitoring the Future, which is a, a survey done by uh, the University of Michigan every year. They've been doing it since the 70s, which is part of why we really know that it's declined so much since the 70s. It was really at its height, uh, substance use abuse for teenagers. You know, over 50% of teenagers in the 70s were drinking or smoking marijuana um, or other things. Um, and what we do is, is we, you know, we ask them what they think these stats will be, and then we, act, we show them the actual numbers, and we talk about why is there this gap. 
So they start to really think through and, you know, the critical thinking aspect of, okay, why? Why am I thinking it's higher? Well, here are the messages I get. And so let me scrutinize these messages a little more. And again, like I, I said, even with our own communities, where do we tend to focus? So when we start to really help kids get their perception closer to what reality is, we bring down use when they understand uh, that there's reasons why that's exaggerated. But also that, you know, that why we, f we seem to have what I would say a drinking culture, that impression that we do have one here in this country, and that's the repetition of the message. Yeah. So if we want to counter that, especially with the truth, the fact that most teenagers are incredibly healthy and making really wonderful decisions to stay substance-free, uh, that's got to be repetition too. And so what it really, what it becomes is it's more than just a program. We like to come into communities and help them find ways to hold health up as the norm and address these issues and have the conversations. And that's the biggest part because the disease of addiction is, is different from other diseases in the way we respond. So we know someone who's been diagnosed with cancer, we lean in. What can we do? What's the prognosis? How can we help? Let me bring over a casserole, clean your house. comes to addiction, it's silence, secrets, denial, and enabling. And you counter that by the conversation. And creating an environment, especially for kids, to have the conversation. This is part of what FCD coming in and having these conversations, and what we leave, hopefully, is a community that feels more comfortable having the conversations. Because it isn't one 60-minute conversation. It's 61-minute conversations. That's a perfect segue to my next question, which is <laughs> what are the best things parents can do to encourage responsible decision-making in their children? Right. Um, clear boundaries, yeah. clear expectations, clear uh, um, limits, and clear consequences. Because they don't, you know, kids don't have a frontal lobe. Oh, yeah. First of all, what substance abuse does is inhibit the development of that. So even as they get older, they're less capable of making good decisions. If we let them postpone, they get to a point where that decision that they wouldn't have made very well at 14, they're making really well at 19. And they get to sort of think this out. So those boundaries, limits, and consequences, and 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 having that expectation that, you know, it's our expectation that you are not going to get involved with these things. You are going to make decisions that support your developmental health. We do not approve of substance use and abuse. Which is, that's a very different statement than, I, you know, forbid you to do this. This is really easy to push against the, I forbid you to do this. It's not as easy when the, the hmm. parents are actually bringing the child into this healthy decision-making process for themselves. Right? And that's so important. And also, I really think that if the parents, I got to the point where students or their kids want to go to these parties, first of all, there just shouldn't be a time when they finally let their kids do it. I think every single time they want to go, they should ask. And knowing with the knowledge that their parent is going to be awake, waiting for them to have a very, you know, a lengthy conversation, not just, hi, I'm good, going to go to bed. We're going to have this conversation. I'm going to ask you what you did. Um, you know, it's going to be the sniff and hug test. But also, the next time they are allowed to go to one of these events is contingent on how that conversation went. So I think that there should be limits to just every 
you know, every aspect of that. And also, first of all, parents don't have to let a child go to one of these places because it is a place where they might potentially be, you know, around their peers that are drinking. Um, and I think it's important to call ahead and find out if the parents are even, you know, if the place where the party is or even is even going to be there. And make these parents need to communicate too about what their expectation of each other are, but also time limit. Again, I'm going to drop you off at eight, and I'm picking you up at ten. They don't have to sit because you know not much good happens after eleven, eleven thirty at night, really. Twelve. It's like why do they need to go till the bitter end? Why do they need to close the party down? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it's helpful for kids. They can blame it on their parents. And like, oh, yeah, I got, you know, my mom. And I think that's an important part of it for mm-hmm. them. It makes it a lot easier for them to go, yeah, no, I, I can't be doing this. Yeah. Oh, you got anything? Yeah, I was, uh, I was just thinking about how in my classes today, I was saying how comfortable is it for you, the students, to have this conversation with your parents? And they're like, oh, super uncomfortable. And I think it can be the same for the parents. I think it's not, like when I think back to my experience, I think why my parents didn't necessarily have the conversation or have it as often or create those boundaries is because I think they felt uncomfortable with it. And I think just kind of pushing through or or recognizing that it's uncomfortable and kind of making, as Sarah said, making that choice to do it anyway, to set the boundaries, um, even when it's uncomfortable, um, really does end up benefiting the students. And two, the students, I mean, teenagers know, when I ask them, I say, hey, how's your decision making? They know it's not great. They're like, oh man, right? So they know that they are not necessarily <laughs> liable to make the best choices. And so having parents present to kind of help that, I think is really, really mm-hmm. important and, and benefits the, the students in the end, big time. Well, Sarah and Lily, thank you so much for speaking with us. Very well. Well, you know, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to come to Foot School. I've been here a few years now, um, and it really is a lovely community. I, I really think you take a lot of what we say and what we suggest, and you do really incorporate. You, you, you really do uh, participate in prevention daily with your students, and it's, it's always lovely to work with a school that does that. Well, thanks so much, and thanks for doing what you do. Thank you. Happy to do it.